Let me start uh, this morning with prayer. Let's do that. God, you are great and good. And as we look, we start this morning in our series on the book of Romans. Uh, We see you all over the pages of it. And I just ask that we would encounter you uh, through the, the words of Scripture here and that we would see you more clearly through Christ and that you and you alone would be our hope. So, Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word? Help me to do a good job. Help us to have open hearts and open ears uh, to receive it well. And may you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Romans. Um, what to say about the book of Romans? Uh, obviously, Rome in the first century was the most important city in the first century, at least in the Western world. There are, to my mind, I've thought about this, I don't think there are any modern day equivalents. And I think maybe the main reason for that is we think in terms of nation states, right? We think of nations, and inside of those nations, maybe there is uh, a great city. So you might think Paris, France, but you don't separate the two. Or London, England, but you don't separate the two. You know, or New York City uh, belonging to the United States. But in the first century, you would not have thought Rome, Italy. Not that way. The city was king. So it was the Roman Empire, and everything revolved around that city, Rome. The city was king. So the church there was going to be the most important church in the empire. Paul sits down somewhere around 57 AD and writes a letter there. It's a big letter. It's got a long doctrinal section. If this is a confession time, I will confess to you the reason that I, we have not done Romans sooner is because I've been a chicken. Uh, a little intimidating. It's a long section of doctrine. covers a lot of things. But it's primarily... A book about God. For example, you can't read Romans without encountering the phrase, the righteousness of God. Or you see this quote in your handout. My scholar has gone to be with the Lord now, an Aussie, a guy named Leon Morris, and he said, God is the most important word in this epistle, in this letter. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought not overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There is nothing like it elsewhere. This is a book about God. So why cover a a book like this if it's long in a day, no offense, of shortened attention spans? You know, right? I mean, we're used to like short, zippy things. We cook in microwaves and things like that. Well, not only is it a book about God and we need to know God, it has these great themes. And so I've, I've put this in the handout just so that you can sort of see if you want, there are probably better, more sophisticated outlines of the book of Romans. But this, these would be like easy street signs for you to navigate. It starts off and Paul does what he normally does. There's a salutation. In chapter 1, the first, you know, 15, 17 verses, 
Uh, you get that. The thesis there is in verses 16 and 17. But then he covers these great topics. Like the rest of chapter 1 through most of chapter 3, he addresses the issue of sin. And then at the end of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 5, he covers the topic of salvation. And then there's a, there are different ways of saying this, but 6 through 8, uh, sanctification, 9 through 11, sovereignty, and then 12 through 16, it's going to be service. So if you have these great questions about, for example, how do I know God? How can my sin be addressed? How can I be saved? That's covered in Romans. You have this question, why, why does it make sense when we read all of the Old Testament and uh, Jewish folks have not believed? That's covered in 9 through 11. What does it look like to live a life devoted to God and walking with Jesus? Well, that's covered in chapters 12 through 16. How do I grow? You know, that's Romans 6 through 8. This applies to you. It's offered to you, and it's possible for you. So you got these easy street signs there. My hope in this great book is that we'll have a balance because I think Romans isn't supposed to make pastors chickens. I think it's supposed to be both deep and clear. In other words, there is a profundity to it, right? There's a weight to it, and I think we're supposed to get that. But this is not master's level, PhD level. This is God's word to God's people. We're supposed to get it. So if we can hold, this is my prayer, that if we can hold the balance of the weight of Romans with the clarity of Romans, because Romans is a book for all of us, that I hope you'll get it and I'll get it and a new believer will get it and our kids will get it and get this, the message of this great book. It's for all of us. And so let's read Romans 1 through 7. I'm going to read the first seven verses, but I'm going to cover just verse 1. There are 433 verses in Romans and after today, Lord willing, there'll be 432 to go. That's it. So it'll be a good start. This is God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Do you see my title? If we're going to look at it, I just want to focus on verse 1. In the Greek, this is one long, difficult sentence. You could hear that whenever it was read, right? And in that first sentence, Paul introduces himself. And if you look at the title of the passage, Who May I Ask is Calling? Some of you are at the age where maybe you've never heard that sentence before. And I'd like to... I don't normally do this because I don't normally ask people to like raise their hands, but I'm going to do it this, this Sunday morning. And would you, if you, if you don't want to do it, that's okay. But would you raise your hand if you still have a landline? Whoa. Wow. I, you know, I'm sure that all the dinosaurs didn't die at once either. Uh, 
So back in the day, like, okay, I have a cell phone, right? And so if somebody calls me, there are two things that I already know just right off the bat. Number one, I know that if they're calling me, unless they got the wrong number, they are calling for me specifically. And then, you know, if I know you, your contact shows up and I, and I see who it is who's calling me. So if I don't answer, like maybe you know I'm screening you or something like that, right? But you see with the technology, it's just my phone and we have, we're alerted to who it is who's calling. And if you don't have that, you know, at least you get the number or you get some kind of spam warning. Back in the day, when we had these phones that were connected to the wall, some of you evidently are still living in this experience, right? Uh, when, when your mom had to figure out how to discipline you while she was on the phone connected to the wall, right? There was a phone etiquette that had to develop. Because you didn't know who was calling, and you didn't know who it was they were calling, you know, for. And so, taught your children to ask, may I ask who's calling? Who, may I ask, is calling is way better than, who is this? Or what do you want? And, uh, and, and so then, once somebody would say, you know, who's calling, then you would introduce yourself. And Paul, in this passage, is introducing himself to the church in Rome. He's telling them who it is who's calling. He's telling them who he is. But he's doing this in a specific way and for a specific reason. The way he describes himself here is going to do two things with the way he describes himself here. But he's going to do it in a specific way. And the reason that he does that is he has a purpose and it has a very specific purpose for it. Okay, But let's start this way. What do we know about this church to whom Paul introduces himself? There are a couple of things. There are more, obviously, that we can go through, but just to start... There are two things that I want to give you, and they relate to the introduction that Paul gives. And the first is this. There is tension in the body. Okay, here's a church. They've got tension amongst themselves, and they need help. It shows up in, they have a mix in their congregation. They have some Jewish folks, and they have some Gentile folks. And there's a debate among, the, among some scholars who sort of look, and they try to guess, you know, was it primarily Jewish or was it primarily Gentile? I don't think we can know, and I don't think it even makes that much difference. What we know about the mix between Jew and Gentile here, because of their, you know, what, what uh, goes into how might they do church, what are their expectations, is that it's enough of this, of this balance or this mix to create issues. And that has a lot of implications. They're asking these fair first century questions, and they're not sorting them out very well. It, it uh, uh, you know, creates this kind of, well, what do we do about this? And I don't know that you could say that there are a lot of problems in the church in Rome, but what this tension could certainly lead to that. And it comes out of a lot of what shows up in the book is related to this Jew-Gentile tension. It shows up, like I said, throughout the book. Let me ask uh, the question in this way. How is the gospel the fulfillment of Judaism? What does that look like in the way we do church every week? How is it that when you look at the Old Testament scripture and the gospel is the fulfillment of that, what is that? What do we do with something like circumcision? How do we answer the question, how are you righteous 
before God. Now, the way they answer that is Jesus, and they get that Jesus, you know, uh, as, the, as the Messiah, the Christ, is part of the, this inclusion of the Gentiles into God's people. They have different ideas on how to work this out. You know, what's the place of the law? What do we do about this issue of circumcision? What are, when we look at the Old Testament, what bits are prelude and what's the substance? How are we supposed to understand that? So that's the first. They've got this tension and they're not sorting it out. They need help to sort it out. The second part is Paul has never met them. So they need help, but why should they listen to him? You know, he says later in verse 13 at the beginning, I've, I wanted to come to you a lot, but so far I've been pre- prevented. He's, ne- he's never been, uh, maybe he's, who knows if he's been to Rome before, but he's never visited that church. And so they don't know him. So ask this, just because they need help, they've got some stuff to sort out. Why should they listen to Paul, let alone regard him as a person who's got spiritual authority? You know, it's one thing even just to give somebody a hearing. It's another thing to go, well, listen, we know this guy's credentials, his bona fides, so we should definitely listen and receive his word because he knows what he's talking about. That's why Paul introduces himself the way he does. So he introduces himself two ways, two ways. Not very modern ways, might I add. So he says, first of all, I am Paul the servant, okay? Paul the servant. Now, let's, uh, this is going to get a little tangly here. The Greek word is doulos. That word really just means slave. It's not, it creates a little bit of an awkwardness. Uh, American commentators Rightly so, so we want to balance this out, have, right, have made a distinction. They've gone to great pains to make a distinction between uh, the slavery that we've experienced in our history in, in America, in the U.S., and, say, first century Rome. And it's true. We should make that distinction. Okay, there were really differences, certainly in just the race-based uh, system of slavery that we've had in the U.S. On the other hand... There are ugly similarities, too. I mean, slavery slavery. It's not, it's not great fun. Um, and we should recognize when Paul identifies himself this way, we're entering into not a different world in terms of the spiritual condition of people, but in the expectations and their understanding, the way the world worked back then. And we should get that. And so uh, here's the claim. Here's what I want to get to. There's this modern accusation about the Bible, and this is what it is. This is what it is. Some claim the Bible endorses slavery, like it's pro-slavery. So the claim is that the, the Bible provides this sort of moral framework to justify slavery. And some people, and this is clear, this is true, some people have actually abused uh, Scripture to say that. Well, how do you, how do you answer that? The Bible endorses slavery. Well, one, just imagine a world in which you banned everything that was abused. Okay? Uh, Like, is government abused? Is money abused? Is sex abused? Is food abused? Power abused? Et cetera, et cetera. You wouldn't have anything if you banned everything. But I don't want to be flippant about it, but just the argument that something has been abused somewhere at some point doesn't mean we ought to ban it. 
right? We live in a fallen world. Everything gets abused. Everything. Um, so how do you answer this, the Bible endorses slavery? Well, I would say two things. Obviously, we can't go into it at great detail, but two things that would be helpful. Number one, there's a difference between the Bible endorsing slavery and the Bible assuming slavery. The Bible assumes slavery exists in a fallen world. It's very different. Not only is slavery an evil in history, slavery is a present reality. There's, there are other people than where we live. All right, So we tend to look at it through the lens of 21st century Americans, and we tend to think about this as, as an issue only about our history and where we are. But the reality is that there are people who are enslaved right now around the world, many of whom are Christians. Now, I want you to compare two things, okay? Say a guy like me, because um, as a pastor, I'm an official Christian, right? So sometimes I get... I'm, sort of a funny thing to say, but uh, I mean, that's the way people can regard you. Oh, you're a pastor. Well, I have a question for you. And if it's somebody who's not a believer, sometimes their questions are kind of rough and tumble. And so let's just say somebody asks me this question, and they have. It's pretty awkward whenever somebody says, listen, I think the Bible endorses slavery. You know, it's kind of a person who holds himself out to be a Western enlightened person. How regressive is Scripture? You've got this archaic, violent book, and you embrace this, and I see this with disdain, and I'm offended, and, and all of that. So that's one. I'm having a conversation with somebody who, who doesn't like the way slavery pops up in Scripture. So compare that to this other situation. That, let's, maybe it's not here. Let's just say it's somewhere else, and there is a Christian, and this Christian is a slave. And this Christian comes across a passage addressed to slaves, and it gives him or her a direct word of hope in a hopeless situation. Okay? Now, keep in mind, in our history, something happened that's not in the future of this Christian slave today. Because William Wilberforce is not walking through that door. Abraham Lincoln is not walking through that door. Harriet Tubman is not walking through that door. They're not dealing with, uh, uh, they're not wrestling with this question out of a Judeo-Christian framework, uh, sorting through principles of government to set them, you know, the, the future is not to set this person free. And what this Christian slave sees is dignity and hope given to me in a hopeless situation. God has a word for me in my desperate situation in this fallen world. God seems to care less about the hubris of this person who attacks his word. It's like he's, he's not, he can deal with the awkwardness and cares way more about identifying himself with this oppressed person who has no hope without a direct word from him. Okay? So the Bible assumes that slavery exists and it gives hope and dignity to the one who suffers under it. We're not the only people on the globe. So that's one way of handling it. The other way of handling it is it's an analogy. He's not making a moral statement, right? He's using something that they're very uh, familiar with. So here's the thing on this. You will belong to something or someone. You're a creature, you're a worshiper, and you're just going to do things that are consistent with that. That's the, you're going to belong to something or someone. It's just if it's God or if it's something less than God. And what Paul is indicating here is, listen, I utterly belong to Jesus, I am utterly devoted to Jesus. So in their setting, 
Slavery is ubiquitous. It's very familiar. I mean, so I don't want you to think I'm making light of this because it's a big issue. But it's like knowing somebody who owns a Ford. You know what I mean? It's like there's enough of it in society. Does everybody own a Ford? No. Some of you even have strong feelings about Fords, don't you? You're like kind of anti-Ford, right? I wouldn't drive a Ford. That sounds like a, you know, a good old boy uh, conversation down south. You know, you have your Ford and Chevy people and all of that, right? But you know somebody who drives a Ford. You do, you do business with somebody who drives a Ford. You even go to church with people who, right, drive Fords. In their setting, it's familiar enough that they're going to be dealing with people who are either slaves or slave owners. It's all around. It's very familiar. They know how it works, and they just assume it. So when Paul introduces himself, who am I, first of all? Who may I ask is calling? Paul says this. This is the first thing that you need to know about me is I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. I belong to him. And here's what they're familiar with. There are exceptions to this, but a slave's typically a nobody. Typically not a, not a big deal. But he represented a somebody. Right? A, 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 a nobody didn't own slaves. A somebody owned slaves. And so if that slave was in the marketplace or doing business or doing some kind of a negotiation, you knew that the principal you were actually dealing with, right, right that slave was just as representative. There was somebody greater behind him. And that's why he says... Not just, hey, I'm, I'm a servant, I'm a slave. I'm the slave of Christ. I'm no one special except in relation to my uh, master. Like I, He's come to you through me, as it were. And so the agenda I have, I'm, I'm only a servant. This isn't my agenda, this is his. And so whenever you're dealing with this, you're not dealing with Paul. By the way, incidentally, Paul's name mean, means something like little one. I'm a small person. I'm, I, that's, I am not the principal with whom you're dealing. I'm just the vessel. I'm the messenger. I belong to Jesus, and I'm representing him. So this applies to them, and it applies to us. By the way, if you want to talk about belonging, there's a big difference between belonging to God, creator, creature, and belonging to another person. Hashtag not the same. All right, second way that Paul introduces himself. All right, listen, I am the servant of Christ Jesus. The second thing is I'm Paul the apostle. The word there, it's a transliteration for us. just means that we look at the word in Greek and we say we're going to put our letters to that. Apostolos. Apostolos means someone who's sent, but like an official messenger uh, who's got an assignment. We could could have a comparison uh, in our day and age with you know, a nation's ambassador, right? That person is an official representative of the nation to which he belongs. Paul is an official representative of Jesus. There's not many. Closest comparison you could get would be like an Old Testament prophet. And what's his sphere of authority? What's his assignment, right? If, a, if an apostle is somebody who's sent with a message and they've got, an, they've got a specific assignment, he says, I was called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, the message of God. The gospel means good news. It's a very, uh, some people think, oh, that's a very churchy word. You know, this was in use in the Roman Empire. 
So, for example, Augustus uh, sent out a gospel. The idea is that a king, an authority, would send out through heralds a proclamation good news. It'd be something like, hey, everybody be grateful because I'm the empire and an heir has been born to take my place. And everybody went, yay, right? Or you, you should be overjoyed because I, the great empire, whom you should regard as a deity now, have assumed my reign. And everybody go, yay, okay? This gospel is better. It's not... It's not the gospel of, of a man propping himself up to be divine. It's the good news of God, and Paul's position is to be an official herald of, herald of that. Another thing to notice. Uh, how do you get the gig? I, uh, apply for it? Do you earn it? Uh, pay for the office because it's so great? Uh, was he elected? Because people thought, well, you know, this guy would do a great job. Uh, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees and all of that. But I'm sure he would make a great apostle if we could get this guy saved. Let's just send him out and do the thing, right? Picked by people because they knew that apostles suffered and everybody else went, not it. And Paul was like, wait, what? You know, that's not how he got the, the gig. Notice this, he says two things. I was called to this. I was set apart for this. You know what he's saying? God selected me to do this. This is a divine commission. I was appointed to this. I've been specially assigned to this gospel work by God. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal because of who Paul represents, Christ Jesus, and the nature of the message that, that it's God's good news uh, it's from, from God himself, and that God had set apart Paul specifically for this work. Now, Paul's no big deal if it's just Paul, but Paul is not bringing Paul to them. That's his whole point. I am Paul representing somebody else. Paul's opinions, Paul's desires, Paul's agenda. You know, when... Uh, when a guy in my shoes, for example, starts talking about too much about the things that uh, he likes or doesn't like, like, uh, like I have teams I cheer for, okay? I, it shouldn't matter whether you t cheer for my teams or not. I have, I have political opinions. I'm a political skeptic, but I have political opinions. But at the end of the day, if you vote the way I do or vice versa, why does that matter among the people of God where we've got something way, way more central and eternal than that? What is it that the herald heralds? Is it his own opinions or is he representing somebody else? Is there room for diversity in the body based on the centrality of Jesus? Not all the conclusions are so obvious there, Paul is bringing, not Paul to them, Paul is bringing the one he represents to them. He's bringing Jesus to them. He's a slave and an apostle. He acts under the authority of and uh, with the agenda of another. And it was God's choice to put him there. So that's the point of this intro. Why does Paul say, listen, the first thing that you need to know in terms of who's writing, I'm Paul, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, and I've been called uh, to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. What did they need to know those two things about him? 
What's the why? So that they'll listen. What he has to say is so important. Remember the themes? Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, service, all of those things. Uh, the idea is that they'll hear what he has to say and they'll, they'll heed what he has to say. And hearing and heeding God's word is a big deal. It's a big deal in the Bible. It gets complicated in a fallen world, right, where there are competing messages with God, with God's message. So, for example, the serpent right away says what? Did God really say? And so God wants them hearing, and the serpent wants them filing for a free agency. But we're called to hear God's word. We're called to listening in Scripture is a big deal. Paul writes this so that they'll listen. It's a big deal. God, in the book of Jeremiah, listen, you did not listen to my prophets. Jesus, after telling a parable about being given the word of God, take heed then how you hear. Paul, after saying, uh, telling, explaining how you can be justified in the book of Romans, faith comes through hearing. Hearing is a big deal. So what do you need to hear? Well, you've got to have ears to hear. It's going to show up in these practical ways. Like, number one, you're going to need these two things are essential. Number one, discern what is and is not God's Word. In a false, crazy world, you have to sort out false, crazy messages. I'll ask, uh, listen, false prophets don't announce themselves as false prophets. You realize that? What they claim is that they're speaking for God. How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? Uh, how, do, how do you know the difference between is this true or is this something I just wish were true? It's Word of God specific. So, as a preacher, if I'm being faithful to the Word of God, one of the things that you'll notice is that I don't get elevated, God Himself gets elevated and glorified, right? And if, if what we're doing is we're accurately handling God's Word and we're explaining that and making it clear, then that comes with the wisdom and authority of God. It's not a person, it's not me, right? Or if somebody is making himself out to be a big deal, it's Word of God specific. Does it contradict God's Word? Or does it accurately apply God's Word? So discern, be humble and open, but don't be spiritually gullible. First John 4, 1 John 4.1, what John says is, listen, beloved, you got to test the messages out there because there are a lot of false prophets out there. A lot of people who come and say, hey, listen, I know the things. I'm speaking for God. And they're not. So you got to discern that. And then there are, this, like, Word of God. How do you focus on that? So discern that, but then the second part is to obey it. Right? Don't just listen and go, yeah, I agree with that, because you obey. Uh, look at verse 5, if you pop down. It says, through whom we have received, he's talking about Jesus, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. This is a response that doesn't merely say, sure, that seems true to me. It is a response that says, that is a call to me, and I'm going to respond to that personally. That is a call that declares Jesus as King and Savior, and so I'm going to uh, entrust myself to Him, and I'm going to follow Him, I'm going to belong to Him. Okay? There's, what I'm getting at is there's an important distinction uh, between knowing and understanding the Word and something else. Uh, it's insufficient. A lot of times when the Bible talks about knowing, 
It, it means not just intellectual knowledge, but it means knowing and understanding something and therefore entering into the experience of it. Okay? It means applying it personally. It's embedded into the word. You know, you want to get kind of savvy about how they did this. You know, say about a husband in the Old Testament, he knew his wife. It's not like, yeah, I recognize her. Yeah, from my wedding day, right? We said hi and said the vows and things like that. It's a personal experience, right? And so there's a, it, as important as it is to know and understand God's word, as James says, even demons do that. Even they know what God says. Hear the word, and since you know it's good, you know it's from God, you obey it. Question to close. I want to talk about your ear. Brad prayed about this as we started. It's like we, couldn't, we coordinated or something. How's your ear? You have an ear for God's word. Well, you have an ear for the book of Romans. Paul lays this out. If you're going to hear from anybody about this, he's a great source. Inspiration of scripture, but he belongs to Jesus, utterly devoted to Jesus, and he's been called by God and set apart uh, by God specifically for this work. The book of Romans has got all the bona fides that you could hope for. Now, will you listen? Will you take heed, to quote Jesus, how you hear? You have an ear. You're, this is, Paul's a good source, and your soul, when it comes to the message of the book of Romans, this is exactly what you need. I, um, I'm fascinated Sometimes to look around and see the diversity of giftings and how people operate and that sort of thing. Uh, engineers, okay? Not going to make fun of you this week. It's probably another week. But I am I'm fascinated by engineers' ability. Like there's a language in numbers, okay? It's a whole new language, and they can, they can see it and understand it. And the rest of us, I'm talking about me in particular, I can do numbers to some degree, like I can balance things, I can make change uh, back in the days when we did stuff like that, right? But I can, I can do basic math and I can even see on some level the complexities of math, but there's a whole language out there that, that God has just given the ability to do that, okay? Music, music, there are people who are brilliant with it. Kara and I went to, uh, we saw a uh, Chris Reeves is not here today uh, at a concert recently. And, you know, he's playing the electric. And it's like, you know, there's kind of a brilliance uh, to it. Not only was he performing, but the way he, uh, he could hear the music and interact. And, you know, so when it's somebody you know and you watch him play, you see that. Not all musicians have this. Have you ever, I don't know if you're a jazz person or not, I think that there are brilliant jazz musicians who are this way. They, they understand their instrument so great, and they hear the other. So just think about the brilliance of people who speak music. And so one person plays, and the other one hears that like it's a language, and they enter into it, and they all feed off of each other. Um, and so there are people who have this brilliant ear, and they hear each other, and they play through it. And there are people kind of like me. I can hear some things and, you know, not hear some things. If you're like, hey, would you sing harmony with me? I'd be like, you don't want that. Okay? You don't want that. Uh, would you sing melody with me? Mm, I'm probably just going to sing over here with Kara, right? Uh, it's probably what I, I need to do. But I can hear, like, good parts and stuff like that, but I don't understand all the complexities. And then there are these kind of people who are tone deaf. 
My dad used to tell a story about this guy. When he was a kid, they lived, I don't know, five, seven miles outside of town or something like that. And then they would walk to town to do the things that kids do. Go to the movie, get in trouble, whatever. And so every once in a while, this old guy in a truck would just give him a ride. But he was notoriously uh, tone deaf. And so he would whistle. I don't know if I can whistle now. There's a lot of pressure. But he would do something like... And they would go, name that tune. And they would go like, ah. You know, they couldn't name it, right? And they had the ears, but he didn't have uh, the tune. He didn't have the message. There are people who have an ear for music, and it's just sensitive. There's a brilliance about them. Do you have an ear for God's word? You just, God makes himself known in Scripture. It's so clear in Jesus. And do you have a, can you hear the message? Do you have an ear to hear? God has made himself known through Christ. He died for you. And God's word is for you to believe in Jesus. Right? That he's done everything needed to make you righteous, in spite of your sin, to make you righteous before a completely holy God. Spiritually, do you have ears to hear? Do you have ears for that? Let's pray. God, we're... Just the, the idea that you would reveal yourself to us, we couldn't know you, we, we couldn't ascend to your heights, but that you would stoop down uh, and make yourself known, make yourself clear. We see that in Christ, we see that in, in the Word, books like Romans. And so I pray that we would get it. I pray that you would bless this series um, for all of us, that we would have ears to hear, that we would listen, that we would want to receive the message of this book, because it's your message, it's your word addressing sin and salvation and sanctification and your sovereignty and how to serve you and so on. So would you bless it that way? And we need something beyond ourselves for that. So we could just have natural earplugs. Would you give us ears to hear? And I pray for somebody who's, I don't know, in that spot where they feel somehow drawn to you but not certain, Lord, that, that they would see that you turn the light on for them out of grace in your mercy and that they would respond to Jesus, that they would repent and believe and uh, find their justification in him, their righteousness in him. May that be true of all of us. Do that for our joy, our good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.